picking up with the story of John the Baptist, but there's some information here at the beginning of chapter 3 that we can't just gloss over. Most of the time, if a, if a pastor is going through this passage, these first four verses just kind of get skipped over. You probably read them as fast as you can so you can get into the parts that are really exciting and fun to share. But as we've said, we're investigating Jesus. And so throughout this account of Jesus' life that Luke is sharing with us, he's giving us a lot of important information to help set the stage, to show the accuracy of his story, and to help prove that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was. And so these are all historical figures and historical things that you can go back and look up and see the evidence that, uh, that, that Luke is sharing for the credibility of what is about to take place. But it's also more important than just that, more than just setting the story and giving us the truth for that. He's setting the stage for the climate that Jesus and, uh, and, and John the Baptist would be ministering in. I think in the church we have a tendency to not really think a lot about the climate. We don't, we don't realize how how uh, devastating and, and dark and depressed the climate was. We, we maybe take for granted our understanding of the world today and, and not even think about how awful things might have been in the time that Jesus came. But I want to help paint a picture for you this morning that, that, maybe, that maybe shows just how down and dark things were. So remember, now, at the beginning of chapter 3, we've skipped 30 years. We have Jesus at the temple as a boy when he's 12 years old at the end of chapter 2, and we covered that. That was the last thing that we covered as a part of the last section going through the book of Luke. But now we've, we've advanced all the way until Jesus' public ministry. He's about 30 years old or so. So, so there's a long time that has passed between when, when we've read all of the information about Jesus' birth and now Jesus beginning his public ministry. It's also the same amount of time that has passed between when John the Baptist was introduced to the world and his story as the one who would prepare the way for Jesus and his beginning of his public ministry, but he had to wait, as we'll see, uh, for God to give him the call to begin. 30 years, that's a long time. I am 38 years old, so I was eight. If you imagine back if 30 years ago how old you were, how old you were that's how long these men waited. They were patient and waiting to do what God had called them to do. As far as we know, it was a fairly private 30 years. We don't have a whole lot of information about either John the Baptist or Jesus between their births and their public ministry. You know, so maybe an assumption we could make would be that that was intentional, that they kept it private so that, so that there wasn't a lot of uh, hubbub about them before it was time. I just said hubbub. I think that's a good word to describe it. But uh, it was probably a private time, and we're going to talk more about John the Baptist preparation next week when we talk about the wilderness. It's going to be a really interesting talk, I think, because of, of what the wilderness uh, symbolizes throughout Scripture and a lot of the, a lot of the thing that, things that go into that. So make sure you're here for that next week. But in this time, there weren't a whole lot of people that knew about Jesus. Jesus had been uh, fairly private. There were the people that knew that he was born and probably those that were connected to that circle but we don't know how far the word had spread, but, but there wasn't a whole lot about Jesus that was in the public eye, at least that we have record of. But now we're entering into this time where we have these key characters that help set the stage for, for Jesus' ministry, and it's important that we understand. So in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 
when Pontius Pilate, here's some key names, Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Ituria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was Tetrarch of Abilene. Here we are, we're, we're in Israel, and then during one more, a couple more names, during, his, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, those, those six names that we really need to pay attention to. Israel had been, had been hoping for a king, a king that would come and restore everything, and they had been without a king. They're longing for a king. They, they have no true king, and in fact, um, the kings that they had were, were kind of minor kings. This word tetrarch means king of, uh, of uh, I think it's fourths, king over a fourth. It's a small king, ruler over a fourth. And where that comes from was after Herod the Great died in 4 BC, so he was the Herod that was there right before Jesus was born at the beginning of the story. And then now Herod, when he died, he wanted the kingdom split into four kingdoms, and he wanted his sons to each take over a fourth of the kingdom. And so they became tetrarchs, kings over a fourth. So they're just, they're just little kings with, with insignificant roles in, in the grand scheme of things. But as far as Israel is concerned, they are no kings. They're not the promised king. Herod was not the king that they had been wanting and waiting for. Things had vastly changed since the promise had been made that we talked about with David and, and the king that would come through the line of David. So Archelaus takes power. I know there's a lot of names, but again, uh, trying to set the stage. Archelaus was the, the son right after Herod the Great, and he took power right after Herod, and he ruled for 10 years, but he was so awful that he was deposed after 10 years, and then they put in the five prefects from, from Caesar came down, and that one of those was Pontius Pilate, and he ruled over the area where Jesus' ministry takes place. And Pontius Pilate would actually become a key player in the death of Jesus. And you should recognize that name if you're familiar at all with the story of Jesus. Pontius Pilate was there. You can go read his account in John chapter 20 and his role that he played in the death of Jesus. So the, each of the Herods and, the Phil, and Philip and all these guys, they had their own areas and, uh, and they, they had their own way of ruling. Philip was the better one of the four, but he still wasn't all that great. Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, Galilee uh, Herod Antipas, and Lysanias, they were all known to be awful men. Uh, one quick note that may help diffuse some arguments, Lysanias, there, was, there are two Lysanias people that are mentioned in history. Most people think that Luke got it wrong when he mentions Lysanias because he died before Jesus was born. But there is actually now, because of archaeological evidence, they've uncovered another Lysanias who was ruling during Christ's ministry on earth, and that is the Lysanias that Luke is talking about here. So, these are the four, the four leaders of, of, of the Gentile world coming down from Rome. So, so, Israel is controlled by Rome. Rome is ruling over Israel. And Israel had been before a, a theocracy ruled by God, and they were supposed to be living by God's ways, but they, they had been taken over and conquered, and now they're, now they're living under the rule of another, another set of rulers. And all of these rulers that we're talking about, they all rule under the big ruler, Tiberius Caesar, who's mentioned here very first, and they can only do what he wants to be done, and he ruled from 11 A.D. to 37 A.D., which I, uh, as I understand, is a fairly long rule for a Caesar. 
But now imagine, this is, as an Israelite, you are living in God's promised country. You're living in God's promised land, the one that he, was, that he had promised when you were in exile in the wilderness, and you were, you were longing to get to from the wilderness, and you're living in God's land, but it's under Gentile control. The Jews despised the Gentiles. And the Jews would not acknowledge that the Gentiles were, in fact, in control and you can see that, I think, in John chapter 8. I didn't uh, put the reference for you up on the screen, but if you want to go look at that, you can see they, just, they were in denial about who was in charge in their country. So in the land, there's no true religion anymore. There's no true faith that the people are living out. Rome was an immensely idolatrous environment. Tiberius Caesar was a god by his own designation. He said, I am a god, so, so we're supposed to worship me. I don't say that. Make sure that you heard that in the right context. I'm not, ta- I'm not saying you should worship me. Tiberius Caesar was saying he should be worshipped. Let's make that clear. So, so he was a god by his own designation. That doesn't, that doesn't jive too well for the Israelites because there's one god, one true god that you're supposed to worship. There are no other gods beside God himself. And so somebody who comes in and says, I am God, worship me, that would kind of be a red flag, right? We would, we would raise some red flags about that. The Israelites had been slaves to the Gentiles for many, many years. They had been under the oppressive control of different regimes for for a long period of time. This was a dark time. This was oppressive. It was was hard to even fathom. And this is just the, the overarching political context of Jesus' ministry. But that's not the only reason that it was oppressive. We are going to discover now that that there was also an immense amount of religious oppression that was brought on through Annas and Caiaphas, who was his son-in-law. Annas had several other sons who served as the high priest. Caiaphas was his son-in-law who was serving as high priest during Jesus' ministry. Um, High priests, this this is really interesting. I didn't know this until I was studying here, but high priests were put in place by Rome. Now, if you're, if you're thinking about Israel, you'd think high priest, okay, it, you know, it would be a part of Israel putting their high priest in order and whatever processes they had to take care of the high priest, but that wasn't the case. The high priest was put in place by Rome, so you had to earn the approval of Rome, of the leaders in Rome, to become the high priest. Sometimes that was by buying your way in, or sometimes it was by getting the vote and the approval through, through other probably uh, not-so-good means. But Annas had somehow become the high priest, and now he was going to exercise a rule of high priest, high priestdom, if that's a word. Uh, he's going to rule as a high priest in a very iron-fisted, iron-thumbed kind of a way for some time. So the Romans had power, but the real power over the Israelites were uh, Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests. They represented God. They were the ones who represented God to the people, and they were supposed to, to bring people in and follow God the way they were supposed to. Annas would represent the leadership that they, they could accept, or the high priest would represent the leadership they could accept since they could not accept the leadership of Rome because of their idolatry. So this position of high priest has become greatly perverted now when Jesus is entering 
onto the scene. But as I mentioned, this, uh, this religious oppression is much more than maybe we've given, given credit to and really thought about. We've talked about this in bits and pieces, but I want to bring them all together here to kind of set the stage for why this was such a, a religiously oppressive environment. Annas was high priest from 7 to 14 AD. He had five sons and a son-in-law who became high priests. But he was, he was kind of, I don't know how you would describe him or what character, but, but he's that guy that just can't let go of control. He can't let go of power. And so even though he has sons who become high priests, he's still the father that everyone has to gain the approval of before they make any decision and, and do anything. And we get a little picture of this in John chapter 18 when, uh, when Jesus has been arrested. We see this, John chapter 18, verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Annas was not the high priest. We see right here that Caiaphas was the high priest. Why would they take Jesus to Caiaphas or to Annas instead of going to Caiaphas? Well, it's because of the way that Annas had ruled and controlled things. So he, you imagine, at least I picture that he is a, a micromanager controlling everything. You have to do everything according to the way he wants it to be done. Even if you're the one with the title, he's still in charge. That's Annas. But the high priesthood here had become something much more than what it was supposed to be. It wasn't any longer really a position of spiritual leadership. In fact, it was probably more like the mafia. And Annas would be, uh, what's, 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 Godfather, Fat Tony. I haven't watched a whole lot of mobster movies, so I don't really know. I'm sorry. But Annas is there. He's the guy controlling everything, making all the decisions, and everything else was ruled through the high priest. The, the base of operation, this is very interesting, the base of operation for the high priesthood, most of the business was conducted in the temple. The temple was built as a place where God was supposed to be worshipped. All the sacrifices were supposed to be made outside the temple, and all the things were supposed to take place as a part of the temple, which was supposed to be a symbol of where God's presence was. And Annas and the high priesthood had taken over it and turned it into a place where they were able to make a lot, a lot of money by oppressing the people. They had turned the temple into a very profitable endeavor. So Annas and Caius, they were the ones that in the end drove the plot that led to Jesus' death. They were the ones that, that, were, that were probably orchestrating all of the details and the people that were seeking to find a way to bring Jesus to a point where he could be condemned, crucified, and done away with. Why? I mean, you'd think as if you're a high priest and, and you're serving in the capacity of high priest and you've heard the prophecies of, of the Messiah and the promised Messiah that is supposed to come and, and rescue the people that when, when one comes that is the Messiah, you would be ready to embrace him, but, but they weren't. Why, why would that be? Why did that take place? Well, for one, Jesus was bad for their business. Jesus was stirring up people for the truth, which was something that they had either buried or twisted at best. 
We, we see a great picture of this, and Jesus, at the beginning and end of his ministry, goes in and drives people out of the temple. Who was it that Jesus drove out, drove out of the temple? It was, it was the money changers. It was the people that were taking advantage of the people who were coming to worship. Give a little context here. So I'm really trying to condense a lot of this and, and make it palatable so that I'm not boring you to death. But bear with me. I think it'll all pay off in the end as we really get an understanding of this. This is, right, this, is, this understanding is what makes the cleansing of the temple such a dramatic scene. So, so Annas and Caiaphas have created the system, or they probably weren't, maybe not the ones who created it, they were just continuing to facilitate it. I don't know for sure about that fact, but, but they were facilitating the system which oppressed the people. When people came to the temple, they needed to give offerings and sacrifices. The offerings, now there's a temple tax, so when you come into the temple, you have to give the temple tax. There was another offering of alms, giving to the poor, and that was something that, that people would beg for, giving alms to the poor. There were other offerings for different ceremonies and purifications that you could give, give offerings for, some of it money, some of it you know, spices and other things that would be, be offerings. There were the tithes that you were supposed to give. 10% of the tithe was supposed to come into the Levites, you know, who were, who were performing the religious duties of that day to help support the Levites and their ability to minister to the people without having to work. And there was another 10% beyond that, which was supposed to go to the poor and caring for the poor. And every three years, there was a third tenth, so 30% of your money. That The third tenth was supposed to go to fund the festivals that would take place throughout the year that you're supposed to go and celebrate at the temple and all the different places. So, so you're giving a lot of money. But that, that, that wasn't enough, and, and you can kind of get a sense of this in our climate today because, because businesses and, and, and the government, it's like they have really creative ways of finding ways to come up with money and charging you for things you never thought you could be charged for. You can see the same thing taking place here. See, the problem was the people, the common currency was Roman money. That was the currency that they would, that they would have at this time. But there's a problem with Roman money. Whose image was on the coin? Caesar's. Caesar's image was on the coin. Well, you can't, you can't worship Caesar. Caesar is not our God. So we cannot, we cannot honor God with money that has another God's image on it. So what would happen is they would have the money changers in and you would bring in your Roman money and you would change it for money that was acceptable to use in the temple. Those are the money changers. These people make payday loan stores look like the Salvation Army, probably charging rates that were far greater than anything we could, we could really fathom. So there's the money changers, there's the, the offerings and, and, and the uh, enforcing of those, and then there's the sacrifices. This one was really interesting to me. Sacrifices had to be given and, and offered without blemish. And so when, when you're bringing a sacrifice, if, if you have sheep, then you go out and find what is called the spotless lamb, the best lamb in your herd, and you bring that one to sacrifice. When you're bringing a sacrifice to God, you're supposed to bring the absolute best. Bring the best of what you have and, and bring it before God and give that. Not the leftovers, not the worst of the herd, not the one that was deformed, not the runt of the litter or whatever. You bring in the very best, the, the most prized of your flock 
That's what you're supposed to do, bring the one without blemish. But, but when you're bringing them into the temple, they would have to be inspected. And so as they're being inspected, they're going to say, um, okay, so this the, you bring it in, you say, this is the best one of my, of my flock or of my herd. Well, I, 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 I can see, I, actually, there's a spot here, there's this thing here, so uh, it's not going to work. It's not acceptable. You're going to have to buy another one. And of course, when you have to buy another one, you're probably going to have to pay through the ear for it. And what would happen probably over time is instead of people bringing their own sacrifices, they would just come to rely on paying for the one at the temple. Maybe it's inconvenient to bring one, and so you decide to pay for one, or you realize that you're not going to be allowed to bring yours in, so, so might as well just pay for one when you get there. Why go through all of the hassle? But this actually helps support the theory, the idea of what we talked about with, with the, the shepherds who the angels came and made the announcement to that they were possibly keeping the sheep that would be used in the temple for sacrifices. Because as, as you can imagine, when, when tens of thousands of people come to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice, and if you're going to provide sheep for the sacrifice for all of those people, you're going to have to have a big business of, of shepherds caring for the sheep out around town. And so the shepherds were probably a part of the system into which Jesus was born. So you can imagine Annas, Caiaphas, his family, his sons, and their wives and children, they were living quite, rich, quite richly off of the religious responsibilities that they had put on the people. There's one more fact that comes into play with the why. Why would Annas and Caiaphas be the ones who drove the plot to lead to Jesus' death? Why would they not be looking for the Messiah? Why would they be so concerned with Jesus? Of course they're concerned with Jesus because he was bad for business, but Caiaphas was a Sadducee. Sadducees didn't believe in the supernatural. Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in, in, in the word and the truth that had been given through the word. They held to traditions over the importance of Scripture. They had a high view of tradition and a very low view of Scripture. And as we shared before, you can remember who they were because they didn't believe in anything that the Bible talked about, so they were sad, you see. So this is who Caiaphas was. He doesn't believe in miracles. He doesn't believe in angels. He doesn't believe in the supernatural. He doesn't believe in any of this. So why would he be even concerned about the Messiah? There's no reason to worry about the Messiah because the Messiah is just a figment of the imagination of the people, and that's not really what's going to happen. What's more important are the traditions that we keep up year after year, and in fact, that is the kind of the, the way of modern Judaism. It's more about the traditions, and you can see this through uh, some the most popular of, uh, of musicals that kind of give us the picture of the culture is tradition, tradition, right? Tradition is the most important thing. So you've got Herod, you've got uh, Tiberius Caesar, and then you've got Annas and Caiaphas, who are really the true power over the people of Israel. Tiberius sitting on the throne, which was intended for God. 
And now you have Annas and Caiaphas who are apostates running God's temple for their own profit and oppressing the people of God in the process of profiting off of the people of God. They oppressed, the more they oppressed, the more they personally received and personally gained, and it became quite an awful environment to be in. It's a dark, dark time. We can't imagine a time really that that goes like this because we haven't really been politically oppressed. We have not been religiously oppressed. There are those maybe who would say that we have in different ways, but not nearly to the extreme with which the Israelites have experienced the oppression before John and Jesus comes in. During all of this time, John is out in the wilderness. We're going to cover the wilderness next week, but he's out in the wilderness, and then there's this amazing thing that takes place here to kind of set the stage for John's ministry. Here in, uh, what is it, verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Luke uses a very intentional phrase here when he's setting up John the Baptist. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. This is a phrase that we can find throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, that is used to people that God used to speak through. Prophets, those are the mouthpieces of God that we see throughout the Old Testament. The first of which we encounter is Abraham. This is the promise, the whole promise that is made that God would would make up a people for himself and he would use Abraham, Father Abraham, to bring it all about. And we hear in Genesis chapter 15 this phrase, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. 1 Samuel 15.10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. We see the same thing with Nathan, the prophet that confronted King David when he had done his awful thing with Bathsheba and trying to have her husband murdered. The word of the Lord came to Nathan. 1 Kings chapter 17, we see that the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Jeremiah chapter 1, we see that the words of Jeremiah, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah. Same was true for Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Jonah, Micah, and Zephaniah. Luke is making a very important point that John the Baptist is the prophet that had been promised that would prepare the way. The word of the Lord came, and this year, this is just like we hear in so many of the Old Testament prophets, in the year of Josiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. There's the same thing in the book of Daniel, in the year of, the word came. Here we have, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. John the Baptist was the promised preparer. He was the promised one who would come and prepare the way. He would be, as we, as we heard, the voice of one calling in the wilderness. The voice came to John while he was in the wilderness. The voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough, the rough ways smooth, and all the people will see God's 
salvation. We read elsewhere in Scripture that Jesus came at the fullness of time, that when Jesus came, it was the perfect time for Jesus to come. Some of what is, that is talked about why it was the perfect time is because Rome had taken over so much, and they had put roads in throughout all of the region, and it became easy for things and people to travel across great distances. And perhaps that is a part of the fulfilling of this prophecy here in in verse 5, the, uh, he's quoting from Isaiah, says that the, that the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth. I'm not saying that's an exact fulfilling of the prophecy. I'm just saying that's possible. But John comes. He prepares the way for the Lord in a very, probably the most important role of all time outside of Jesus himself. This is the one whom Jesus would speak of in Matthew chapter 11. He would say, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. John stepped into the role of of millennia, the role that would prepare the way for the Messiah to come. And his message was one he had to be faithful to. He had to be faithful to the message that he had been given, that he was to prepare the way for Jesus. That, that he could not create a following for himself, that when it came time, it was more important for him to be able to say, he must become greater, I must become less. Stop following me, go follow Jesus. He's the one, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He is the greater one who will come and baptize people with fire. I'm baptizing with water, but, but he's gonna baptize with fire. He is the one we have been waiting for. Go and follow him. He is the Messiah. My only job was to lead you prepare you to receive him. This was John the Baptist's role. But John and Jesus would work as we see in concert. It wasn't clear to everyone. We see from the disciples that they, they were maybe concerned that John the Baptist was baptizing more people than Jesus would, and Jesus didn't seem concerned about it at all. They would together, at least in part, lead a revolution that would change the world. And as a result of the oppressive rule of Annas and Caiaphas, the oppressive rule of Herod, both of them would be put to death. The political leaders, Herod would would kill John. He would cut his head off, brought it out on a platter, a silver platter, at the request of his woman. And Annas and Caiaphas would lead to the ultimate destruction, the one that would bring about the death of the one everyone had been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years. Annas and Caiaphas would be responsible for getting Jesus murdered on a cross. So the reason I wanted to maybe set the stage a little bit is because If we think about Jesus just kind of coming in and walking around with people and doing some miracles and having a good time and laughing and having all the fun that he had, and then, you know, it kind of throws the cross out of balance. It doesn't doesn't really give us the understanding. We don't understand the world that he came into, and, and we don't understand then why Jesus ministered the way that he did. In fact, we see in the life of Jesus that doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly, our mission here at 6A Church would become a very important key characteristic of the way that he lived his life as the Son of God. He was very concerned with justice. He was very compassionate, and he was humble, even though he had the 
the right of, of anyone to be braggadocious. He walked humbly. This was the climate that Jesus would come into. This was the oppression that Jesus would come into. This was, this was the overwhelming, dark, saturated, oppressive world that Jesus would come into, and he would come in and he would speak things like peace and freedom. He would talk about setting the captives free. He would talk about the things that the people of Israel had longed for for years, and and the words that he spoke to the Israelites would echo throughout centuries and millennia to us today where we still need to hear the same words of being set free, where where those who are oppressed need to be set free, where, where those who are hungry and hurting need mercy and compassion, and where those who know and walk with the one true God need to walk humbly with that true God so that others may be invited into this walk and this understanding. This makes all of what Jesus did so much more miraculous. The gall of someone to go into the temple and throw things around. The gall of someone to say to the, to the Pharisees and call the Pharisees out for the things they weren't supposed to be calling other people out on and, and the things they weren't supposed to be accusing other people of. And the life and times of Jesus become so much more epic when we understand it with the right setting. This was the setting that Jesus came into. This is the setting we need to keep in mind as we study his life and his ministry in the weeks to come. Let's stand together. I ask if you would bow your heads and close your eyes. The band is going to come. We'll, we'll sing a song and invite you to come forward, get the elements for communion, take them back to your seat. We'll take them together after the song. This time of communion is a reminder that, that Jesus paid the ultimate price for us, that, that he gave his life, that he gave his breath to pay the price for our sins, to pay the ransom for us. But as we stand here, I also understand that there, that there may be some things in our own hearts and our own, own minds that are keeping us from, from really embracing the truth of God's story. And I want to pray for us as we continue on in this series. Heavenly Father, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit, the presence of the Almighty God alive and active and at work in this place, in the hearts of those who believe, the, the work of the Holy Spirit that is performing a great work in each believer, transforming us into the image of Christ himself. I pray, Father, that you would send that Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts to open the eyes of our minds and, and those things that we may have become blinded to that, that are becoming a stumbling block for us to really understand and grasp the depth of the story of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel. Father, I pray anything that's a roadblock in our mind that's keeping us from being able to, to see clearly the truth of Jesus Christ, I pray, Father, that you would, by your power, remove that 
and this moment. And I pray, Father, that you set us all on a course to, to really gain the depth of understanding that can only come from studying Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came into the world, who became sin so that, so that we could become the righteousness of God, who put on humanity, who was clothed in our sinful flesh, who died and paid the price for the sins of all humanity, though he had committed no sin himself, who would be able to really grasp and understand this Jesus who walked our air, or walked our sod and breathed our air. Father, help us to be able to receive that truth in a way like we've never had before. And help us to remember throughout this whole time that this is leading to a point, that this is leading to the sacrifice of the Son of God on the cross. This is leading to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, conquering death, hell, and the grave. That, that the resurrection is not a myth, as the Sadducees would say, but that the resurrection was a truth. That the Christ who was raised ascended and now sits at the right hand of the Father, and he sent his Holy Spirit to empower us to live this life that he's called us to live that we cannot live this life on our own, but through the power of the Spirit living in us, we can live out the life we've been given to live as a gift, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ himself. Father, may we see that picture in a way we never have before. May we discover truths of Jesus that we've never seen before. And may they not only inform our lives and, and inform who we are in Christ and give us the power of the identity of Christ to live out in our lives, but may it, may it vastly affect our desire and our passion to share the love of Jesus Christ with those who don't know that, that we would be driven by what we see in Jesus Christ to want to go out and live out Jesus Christ's life to those who don't yet believe, to those who don't yet know, to, to a world that may be seeking to, to, to dial down and oppress Christianity, to a world that may even seek to persecute Christians and, and put them down out of view, that we may be able to, by the power of the Spirit, live out and shine brightly the light of Jesus Christ into the darkest of places that we would see and gain the perspective that you came into the darkness to shine the light, and we have been given the same task to be able to come into the darkness and shine the light, not for ourselves, that we may, that we may shine the light and receive the glory for us, but that we may shine the light so that Christ may be glorified, that we may follow in the pattern and the habit of John the Baptist, that we prepare the way for Christ to come into the darkness. Father, give us that call, give us that mantle, give us that burden to be those who prepare the way for those who don't yet know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.